also thank you, Eric. I, my understanding was that mutually exclusive meant that this is A, this is B. I don't have to... Like, they're mutually exclusive. They're separate. They're disjointed. But apparently, the yeah, the phrase is not mutually exclusive because it's logic. <laughs> In logic and probability theory, two events are mutually exclusive or disjointed if they cannot both occur at the same time. Well, that sounds completely counterintuitive. They're exclusive. They should be separate, meaning this thing is over here. It's a separate thing, and this thing over here is a separate thing. They don't require each one to be true. Anyway, Stan, welcome to the show. Hello, Stan. How are you? Hi, Pete. How are you? I'm good. What's up? You know you, but I was going to discuss with you, and I was looking up uh, some stuff online a while ago, and I just wanted to go over before I got on your program. Um, the news media, and I'm just looking at online, the news media uses fuzzy logic to tie two things together. Perhaps it presents information side by side that has no correlation, yet the viewer is bound to decide they were connected. This may be based on how the information was presented or what information was presented and in what order. And that happens every time we hear the news. Such like the unemployment rate, surprising experts, the unemployment rate was up today and the stock market did X. You assume they were connected, but they may not be. And they do that all the time. Yeah, there's, it, it's the same thing with reporting economic news as, quote, good or bad when the economy is such a huge thing the idea that you could pull one piece of data and say that it's good because like there are so many different effects that a piece of data can have that framing it in such a way like that is uh it's a bias it's not um it shouldn't be framed as that uh the report well, should well, just be here's the unemployment rate and that's it yeah. and, and and you shouldn't be saying that this is good news or bad news Correct. And, and, and also the experts, they're always quoting the experts for surprise. Well, then how do they get to be experts? Right. Well, it just, uh, uh, it means somebody who isn't from your town. That's what, Correct. That, yeah, that's all that an expert is. And, th- and then everybody heads down to the local pub to talk to their friends who get their news from same screwed up sources. And then mm-hmm. they wonder why we have a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- but this is the thing. You, people... And look, and I just did. I was saying mutually exclusive because I thought that that's what that, I mean, because I know what the phrase is, not mutually exclusive. These things are not mutually exclusive. My understanding of what the phrase mutually exclusive meant apparently is incorrect, and I just learned that right now. Um, I assume that they mean distinct, right? So when people, uh, and so when you say they're not mutually exclusive, then that would mean that they are connected, that they are tied to each other, that you got to have one with the other. And that apparently is not what that what that means. It means the exact opposite because that makes total sense for some reason. Um, and so, yeah, all right, well, whatever. But that's why people shouldn't get their news just from me. People should get news from multiple sources. I've been a proponent of that forever. Get your news from multiple sources, Stan. I appreciate the call uh, because you got to see what uh, you know people's treatment of certain stories. That's why I'm reading to you from CNN right now, right? CNN. Now they mentioned this guy George Papadopoulos who was the dad in Webster. I think he used to play football for the Chicago Bears at one point. The TV show Webster, remember? George Papadopoulos and Ma'am, his wife. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, no, George Papadopoulos was a, a campaign guy, staffer guy, foreign policy, somebody or other, or as Trump said, oh, I think he got me coffee once or whatever. Um, but let me take you back. This would have been do, 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 July 2019. July 2019, when Mueller did his uh, 
report, and he appeared before the House Oversight Committee, and he got questioned by Jim Jordan. Director, the FBI interviewed Joseph Mifsud on February 10th, 2017. In that interview, Mr. Mifsud lied. You point this out on page 193, volume one, Mifsud denied. Mifsud also falsely stated. In addition, Mifsud omitted. Three times he lied to the FBI, yet you didn't charge him with the crime. Excuse me, are, did you Why say not? one, I'm sorry, did you say 193? Volume one, 193. He lied three times, you pointed out in the report. Why didn't you charge him with the crime? Uh, I can't get into uh, internal deliberations with regard to who would or would not be. Uh, charge a lot of other people for making false statements. Let's remember this. Let's remember this. In 2016, the FBI did something they probably haven't done before. They spied on two American citizens associated with a presidential campaign, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. With Carter Page, they went to the FISA court. They used the now famous dossier as part of the reason they were able to get the warrant and spy on Carter Page for a better part of a year. With Mr. Papadopoulos, they didn't go to the court. They used human sources. All kinds of, from about the moment Papadopoulos joins the Trump campaign, you got all these people all around the world starting to swirl around him. Names like Halper, Downer, Mifsud, Thompson, meeting in Rome, London, all kinds of places. The FBI even sent, even sent a lady posing as somebody else, went by the name Azra Turk, even dispatched her to London to spy on Mr. Papadopoulos. In one of these meetings, Mr. Papadopoulos is talking to a foreign diplomat, and he tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. That diplomat then contacts the FBI, and the FBI opens an investigation based on that fact. You point this out on page one of the report. July 31st, 2016, they open the investigation based on that piece of information. Diplomat tells Papadopoulos, Russians have dirt, excuse me, Papadopoulos tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. Diplomat tells the FBI, what I'm wondering is, who told Papadopoulos? How'd he find out? I can't get into the evidentiary file. Yes, you can, because you wrote about it. You gave us the answer. Page 192 of the report, <laughs> you tell us who told him. Joseph Mifsud. Yep. Joseph Mifsud's a guy who told Papadopoulos. The mysterious professor who lives in Rome and London, works at teaching two different universities. This is the guy who told Papadopoulos. He's the guy who starts it all. And when the FBI interviews him, he lies three times, and yet you don't charge him with a crime. You charge Rick Gates for false statements. You charge Paul Manafort for false statements. You charge Michael Cohen with false statements. You charge Michael Flynn, a three-star general, with false statements. But the guy who puts the country through this whole saga starts it all for three years we've lived this now. He lies, and you guys don't charge him. And I'm curious as to why. Well, I can't get into it, and, uh, and it's obvious, I think, that we can't get into charging decisions. When the FBI interviewed him in February, FBI interviews him in February, when the special counsel's office interviewed Mifsud, did he lie to you guys too? Can't get into that. Did you interview Mifsud? Can't get into that. <laughs> Is Mifsud Western intelligence can't or Russian intelligence? Can't get into that. A lot of things you can't get into. What's interesting, you can charge 13 Russians no one's ever heard of, no one's ever seen, no one's ever going to hear of them. No one's ever going to see them. You can charge them. You can charge all kinds of people who are around the president with false statements. But the guy who launches every, the guy who puts this whole story in motion, you can't charge him. 
I think that's amazing. I'm not certain I agree with your characterizations. All right, so that was Robert Mueller being questioned by Jim Jordan two years ago, more than two years ago, about this fellow Mifsud, who was the one who said, hey, the Russians got some emails, told Papadopoulos. Papadopoulos then told, uh, told an Australian diplomat, a guy by the name of Downer. Downer then tells the FBI, and the FBI, they don't go after Mifsud. Who do they go after? Papadopoulos. Why? And what's up with this Mifsud guy? Lee Smith did some investigations on this for real clear investigations, and I'll uh, get to that up next. All right, just for the sake of uh, clarity and accuracy, it appears I was, in fact, correct in my original usage. Of the term. Upon further review, I was right. See, one time I thought I was wrong, and uh, it just turned out there that I was mistaken. That's not really my fault. Mutually exclusive. See, this is what happened. I got a, I got a tweet, and I was like, Pete, I think you mean not mutually exclusive. I think you're using the phrase wrong. So I looked up real quick. Wait a minute. Am I? Which, maybe I shouldn't doubt myself, but I do. I did. And I saw... Mutually exclusive, describing multiple events or states of being such that the occurrence of any one implies the non-occurrence of all the others. And I got thinking backwards. So anyway, the point here here is unable to be both true at the same time, which is what I was describing. People who are saying that you have situation A and situation B, right, in regards to this Durham indictment, where they're saying, oh, Durham only took, you know, part of this email. And they say that if you look at the whole email, it shows this other thing. Well, that's B. There's A, what Durham used, and B, the rest of the email. And both of those things are true. And they do not require the cancellation of the other. Like a coin toss, it's either going to be heads or tails. You cannot have one and the other. They are mutually exclusive, right? You, you can't have one and the other. They're separate. They're distinct outcomes. And that's what I was saying. You can, like, this is not, they're not, these are different outcomes. That was the whole point. I don't have to pick. One does not require the other not to be true, right? Both can be true. I can, I can flip this coin and it can be A and B. So they are mutually exclusive propositions, One can be true, one can be false. Both can be false, both can be true. All right. Um, This guy, Mifsud, why is this important? Well, because CNN cites Papadopoulos as one of the avenues into Trump world that the FBI was pursuing. And CNN uses this example as, um, as proof that, you know, this Sussman avenue into trump were like this wasn't that big of a deal i mean okay fine sussman was a clinton campaign attorney he was an attorney for the dnc he was an attorney for these tech people who were doing this whole alpha bank russia thing connection and he brought all of that to the fbi just because he's a patriotic citizen not because he's you know in you know up to his eyeballs in democrat politics and no 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 he wasn't trying to use oppo research to try to get people charged or to try to get an investigation launched so then he could cite the presence, the mere existence of the investigation as 
proof of some nefarious dealings. Because the FBI did look at what the tech people brought up and they dismissed it. That's not, wasn't worth it. So there's nothing there. It's what they determined. Now the tech people are like, no, 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 we totally believe it. Well, you could totally believe it. It doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true, right? So CNN cites Papadopoulos as this, uh, this other pathway into the Trump campaign that, see, this was totally fine. They had other tips that they were running down. Well, but if you look at the other tips, we already went through the Carter Page tip, but with Mifsud, as you heard, uh, or sorry, with Papadopoulos, as you heard, he came across this guy, Mifsud, and Joseph Mifsud, and when you look at this guy's uh, resume, the dude's been all over the place. Like, he's Maltese, which, like, automatically screams spy. Like, is anybody actually from Malta who's not a spy? It just sounds very spy origins right if you're going to be a spy like Malta is a pretty cool place to be from it just sounds like anyway it doesn't matter point is uh Maltese diplomat guy he's got all these connections to all these different uh people and world leaders and stuff but nobody really knows what he does that's kind of weird that's kind of weird and if it was Mifsud who gave this information to Papadopoulos. And really, what was the information? It was just that the Russians have some stuff on Hillary. Now, Papadopoulos says that that is even really like there wasn't any prediction like, oh, they totally hacked all of her emails. That there was a discussion that Papadopoulos had because Mifsud approached him. They had a discussion about general um, cyber espionage going on. It was just a general conversation. Papadopoulos then mentions it to this Australian guy, Downer, and uh, who, as I understand it, is the life of the party. And uh, then Downer goes to the FBI. The FBI then goes after Papadopoulos, which, of course, then feeds the narrative that there are these connections between Russia and the Trump campaign. Who was Mifsud? Because nobody seems to really care, which I find to be odd. That this guy is a key figure in the FBI's opening of an official investigation into uh, the Trump campaign, but nobody knows who he was working for. Why isn't that important? How come he hasn't been pursued? If he lied to the FBI three times, why hasn't the FBI charged him with making false statements? Right? He is the original contact between Russia and the Trump campaign. He has contacts throughout Western governments. And none of these Western governments seem to be particularly concerned that they may have a Russian agent that's somehow in their orbit, too. Why is that the case? Could it be, as Lee Smith uh, at Real Clear Investigations has reported, Mifsud traveled many times to Russia, has contacts with Russian academics, as close as public ties are to Western governments, though and politicians and institutions of the West, including the CIA, the FBI, and British intelligence services. One of his jobs was to train diplomats, as well as police officers, intel officers, and he did it at schools in London and Rome, where he lived and worked for years. Is it possible, then, that maybe the information came from a Western intel organization? given to Papadopoulos, who gave it to an Australian, and the FBI used that to go after Papadopoulos, knowing that the information really wasn't legit, but it didn't matter, because it got laundered. 
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Want to welcome to the program the Senior Vice President at the John Locke Foundation, Becky Gray. Hello, Becky. How are you? Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you, Pete. Yeah. So um, I have uh, every Tuesday I speak with Tim Moore, the Speaker of the House. We have him on. And um, this is maybe my fault. I forgot to ask him. We just ran out of time about the progress of the budget talks. And then I see the very next morning they're like, hey, we got some uh, budget agreement. Now, I'm not taking it personally. <laughs> Actually, I think you should take credit for it. <laughs> so, all right, so what happened and where are we with the budget talk? And why is this uh, this budget agreement, rather, and why is this uh, the big news of the week, I think? Well, the big news of the week is because we've been waiting for months for this. Um, Pete, our fiscal year ended on June 30th. Now, not to get alarmed about it, we do have a provision in law that if we don't have a budget in place, we just revert to the current year spending. So no need to panic about government shutting down. But um, and, and we are one of two states in the country that has not gotten their budget for the next year. The other one is Michigan. And the Republican General Assembly has sent a budget to the Democratic governor in Michigan. So we really are an outlier here on the delay in the budget. Now, I like to think about the reason why we're doing that is because we've got so much money with the COVID relief money coming in from the federal government with savings reserves that have been built up because of the governor vetoing every budget since he's been the governor that, you know, this General Assembly wants to make sure that every dollar is spent responsibly and that we really have a grip on all where all of that money's going. So this has been a very long process, and we're not there yet. Um, you know, what's happened this week is the General Assembly has reached an agreement. Senator Berger and Speaker Moore reached an agreement, I think it was Wednesday morning, on what they believe is the consensus between the House and Senate versions a little bit different than we've seen in past years. They are sending that over to the governor to have some conversations about where there might be trip-ups for him in it to see if they can work those differences out before they send it to him for a, what we hope is not, but may very well be a veto. So a little bit different process. That's where we are right now. The, um, as I understand it, the talks within the governor's office and then the talks between Senator Berger and Speaker Moore will begin with the governor to work those things out. I, I don't know, Pete, but I'm guessing that the governor will keep this for, for several days, maybe a, a week, maybe even longer, to go through everything to check and see, you know, what, what his position is on the what the General Assembly has sent over. Then it comes back to the General Assembly for an up or down vote in both the House and the Senate. We'll be very interested to see what that vote looks like if there are Democrats who vote for the budget. And we'll know at that point kind of what some of those conversations between the governor and the Democratic caucus and the General Assembly have been. And then once it passes the General Assembly, officially passes the General Assembly with recorded votes on it, so we'll know where everybody stands, then it goes over to the governor for his consideration and whether or not he has three choices. He can sign it, he can veto it. If he does nothing, it automatically becomes law within 10 days. So what's going to happen this year? I don't know. As I mentioned earlier, Governor Cooper has vetoed every single budget that the Republicans have sent over to him since he's been the governor. So if he signs this one, it will be the first one in his 
governorship halfway into his second term that he actually signs a budget. So that's where we are with this, and it's been a long process. I think in the end, Pete, the, everything I've seen in this budget, and of course, you know, there's, there's, you can always nitpick things and find something that you don't like, but I think overall this is probably one of the strongest, most fiscally responsible budgets I've seen since I've been monitoring these things for, gee, you know, close to 20 years. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was a, it's an important point. Uh, people have probably heard of a pocket veto. We do not have a pocket veto in North Carolina. We have a pocket approval. So he, it's a way that a governor can let something become law without putting his name on it. And um, that might be something that we actually see him do on this. I'm not sure. Um, I think a lot of it, people are trying to kind of, you know, make predictions based on what I think is going to be what they believe Cooper is going to do after he's governor. Does he want to make a run for another office? And if he does, what is he going to be touting? What is he going to be trying to hang his hat on? And uh, aside from, you know, I was the governor during COVID, not really sure what accomplishments he has uh, to run on for a higher office for a different or a different office. People, I think we're talking about U.S. Senate. I've also heard that he's not interested in running for another office. He's just want uh, he just wants to be, you know, Jim Hunt 2.0 and sort of be a Democratic Party kingmaker. So I don't know. But um, if he wants to, I guess he can try to uh, negotiate for this what Leandro funding uh, for that spending level for education, or if he wants to try to block it again for Medicaid expansion. I guess those are the options. Right. Yeah. He's also mentioned um, carbon emission reduction. I think he wants seventy percent carbon emission reduction. In that's an energy portfolio question. Um, he's also mentioned teacher pay increases in both the Senate version and the House version. There are pretty generous raises for teachers. There's also raises for state employees. There's bonuses. There's some other things. So the things that we've heard the governor say, hey, this is important to me, um, those things are in there except for, you know, he wants across the board add, throw about 600,000 able-bodied, childless, working-age adults onto a Medicaid program that is already massive and struggling to be able to provide the services to the folks who need it. You know, we, we already have 20% of our population is on Medicaid, Pete. T- today, I mean, the current numbers, over 20% of North Carolinians are on Medicaid. Over half the babies born in North Carolina are born under Medicaid. So you already have a tremendous program, very large, very cumbersome. Um, there have been all kinds of things over the, really, for, for years, even, you know, when Pat McCrory inherited some of the problems with Medicaid and contracts and, you know, just not knowing what was going on, a lot of abuse of the funds, a lot of waste of the funds. So what the General Assembly is trying to do is to, to get a very massive, ill-managed, ill-run program under control so that it's more fiscally responsible. And we're, we're ensuring that the people that do need those services are getting the quality of care that they need and deserve, and the costs are part of it because the taxpayers are picking up the tab for this. So I think the, the governor has finally gotten the message, I, I think, that this General Assembly has no interest in expanding this Medicaid program by, again, another 600,000 or more additional able-bodied, childless, working-age adults. 
so where the governor before has really drawn that line in the sand about Medicaid expansion, the General Assembly has said no and pretty consistently said no. So I don't know that that's as big of a hump as it has been in the past. But that that's you're absolutely right. Yeah. That's one of the things that the governor has mentioned. Well, we shall see. Becky Gray from the uh, John Locke Foundation, Senior Vice President over there. You can read uh, her and the organization's work at carolinajournal.com. I will say Dallas Woodhouse has been doing a ton of stuff on the judiciary that's really important. uh, Folks should go check out. Yeah, Very interesting stuff. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, Becky, thanks so much. We'll talk with you next Friday. Thanks. Great to be with you. Have a great weekend. All right, thanks again to Becky Gray from the John Locke Foundation. She is the senior vice president. Their work can be found at carolinajournal.com. Here's a story at a WRAL TV station uh, owned by the Goodmans, who fund uh, probably, I want to say, about 140% of all of the leftist organizations in the state. Anyway, a proposal in the state house would create a system of private inspectors for commercial buildings in North Carolina. Private inspectors. And so you know what that means. Death. Disaster. Yeah, just buildings collapsing everywhere. Because a private inspector obviously is not going to be good as good at their job as a government inspector. I mean, how could a private inspector be as good as one in the government? I mean, next thing you're going to tell me that, like, a private company would be able to, like, build a road. Don't you know that the government has all of those? The government is way better at building all the roads than the private sector. I mean, come on. Oh, what's that you say? That it's actually private companies that build all those roads? That's interesting. It's true. (laughs) Uh... House Bill 865 is now being attacked by uh, the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, uh, for uh, because it would allow builders to select a private inspector of their choice instead of local officials to sign off on their work. The inspectors would be certified by the North Carolina Code Officials Qualification Board. This is a bill aimed at helping relieve some of the um, the workload on local inspection departments because when especially in smaller towns uh, smaller county Union County's got a problem with this apparently like yeah you're trying to do a project and you got to get your inspections and you know you're lucky if somebody shows up within a week or two or whatever like you're trying to Organize this. You're relying on someone to show up. And so, okay, maybe this would be a reason. I mean, everybody's going to know what the codes are. Now, if you're suggesting that, what, some private company is going to, what, pass buildings that are not up to code, right? That's that's the fear. I mean, this is the argument that the Democrats are making, that you can't trust these private companies because they'll just get into cahoots with one another, Okay. Um, what is to prevent someone in the government from getting in cahoots with a company, with a builder? Are you telling me that doesn't happen? (laughs) Oh, please. You're telling me 
that only a private contractor would would look the other way or would issue some uh, uh, some inspections, some approvals, that that would only happen if they are employed by a private company. It would never happen if they were employed by government. Really? By the way, um, oh, and so one of the arguments here, where is it? Uh, here it is. Uh, Deb Butler. Deb, she who will not yield. Do you remember this woman? Representative Deb Butler, she was the one screaming like an idiot on the floor of the House when the Republicans in the House voted to override the governor's veto. Remember that? It was, everybody knows it, it occurred on September 11th, two years ago, and Democrats did not show up because apparently, according to Deb Butler, they were across the street working on the redistricting maps that they weren't supposed to be working on. But they were doing that, and um, they were not at the House for the call for the veto over. And Republicans had told the Democrats, we're going to try to override the veto, so you better keep showing up. Because the moment you don't show up and we've got the votes to override the veto, we're going to do it. And then that morning, Democrats didn't show up, and Republicans ran the—they proposed the override vote, and Deb Butler lost her mind. And started screaming from the floor, how dare you, Mr. Speaker? I will not yield. I will not yield. Just screaming like a moon bat. And the video went viral. And everybody was like, she's so brave. Hashtag Shiro. And what the irony was that if she had just shut up and left, then the Republicans would not have been able to pass the override. Yeah. If they had just walked out, there would not have been enough people present for there to be the quorum vote. And they would have blocked it. But because they wanted the viral video moment and or they don't know the rules, they allowed the override vote to continue with their theatrics. Not only did they look silly and childish, but they also displayed ignorance and then allowed the very thing to occur that they claimed to be opposed to. But she says... That, uh, quote, we're talking about public safety. We have seen buildings recently fall in Florida and hundreds of people die. The building in Florida was inspected by a government inspector. (laughs) Florida does have some private inspectors, but that building was inspected by a public sector employee, not a private one. Uh, Ted. All right, I'll talk to Ted. Hello, Ted. How are you? Welcome to the show. What's going on? Oh, I'm doing good. Good. I am a commercial inspector here in the area. And what they're going to do, if that bill passes, they're going to be getting rid of all of us, and we're going to start our own companies and do it. Would you prefer to do that? Um, no, because I've been paying into the pension program for a lot of years. Well, you would still get now the pension, though. But you would still get no, that. No, because you have to be there long enough. Oh, but so you haven't been there long enough to collect your pension? Well, I would, but it'd be a very small at this point. Okay. Well, but you would. But so, if you, but I could. So, but you would I be able to go into the my own company. What's that? I said I can make a lot more money doing my own company. Right. So uh, that's why I asked. Like, so you would you like to do that? And you said no. Uh, I kind of like the benefits, the insurance, and everything. You know, and I would have to have my own liability insurance. Yeah. You know, right now the county does it, so that that'd be really expensive, but. It's going to be the same guys doing the same thing with the same qualifications. Right. But there would be more of you. 
Uh, to get the, uh, the the state certification, you have to do certain steps to do it, and right. it's really difficult to get the job. Well, yeah, but there would be more of you because the the supply would not be artificially constrained by the government budgets, right? I mean, the if the market would bear way more, uh, way more supply, you would have way more people, you know, engaging in the activity, right? So you would have way more people, way more businesses, and then that would obviously give people more opportunities and. Yeah. The, the tough part is getting the qualifications, having having enough experience and everything to get the qualification. And if you can do it to do work for a private company, you can do it for Union County. Right, but there's still a constrained supply because the government is only going to have a certain amount of people budgeted for that work. Whereas if you open your own company, you go out, you you know, you know, you kill what you hunt, right? Like that's how you survive. All right, news is next. Thanks for the call, Ted.